Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. kind of a sick school is this? Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You got spunk. I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, righty. How you doing? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Say hello to my little friend! I love to celebrate plum in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I got a crap on deck that can choke a donkey. Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Can I do that? I'll be back. A dynamite! Up your nose when you got the phone. What? I'm sailing! I'm sailing! Groovy. You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Here's looking at you, kid. We got no food. We got no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off! Go to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? <laughs> I'm coming to join you, honey. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We're on a mission from God. Hello and welcome to another fun-filled episode of Then Is Now Podcast. I am your host, Rigor. As many listeners already know, we strive on this show to present cool pop culture of the past to a new generation who may have missed out on those things. Comic books have been around for the last 90 years or so and are still going strong. Most modern audiences are familiar with the Marvel and DC movies that have been popular for the last decade, as well as the various superhero shows on TV and on streaming services. Comic books are one thing that have never left the zeitgeist and remain a large part of our pop culture. On our show today, we're going to talk with an amazing comic book writer who has been plying his trade since 1990. Joining me as co-host will be comic book guru Justin Cooper, who last joined me on the show in which we discussed The Crisis on Infinite Earths. So sit back and enjoy our interview as we discuss the amazing career of one of the modern era's most prolific comic book writers. Class is in session. I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Food fight! Hey, you in my class? I am today. I think you should consider transferring to shock class. Woo-hoo! Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shock class. 
Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good. Sign this. Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell ring and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're gonna have recess all the time. Woo! Go! Play and have fun now! Okay, folks, as I mentioned in the original intro, we've got a special guest today. And joining me as co-host once again is fellow podcaster Justin Cooper. How's it going, Justin? Great. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, actually. I'm doing very well. I'm so excited to have our guest on today. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent, excellent. So, folks, our guest today has been a comic book author since 1990 who has put his indelible stamp on such titles as Superman, Batman, Green Lantern, Superboy, Ion, a 12-part comic book miniseries that follows Kyle Rayner after the one-year-later event, Tales of the Sinestro Corps presents Parallax, and Tales of the Sinestro Corps presents Ion for DC Comics, just to name a few. At Marvel, he's worked on Thor, Secret Defenders, Silver Surfer, Captain America, Namor the Submariner, and what if, again, just to name a few. He's well known for Batman Aliens, Green Lantern Silver Surfer Unholy Alliances, and the acclaimed DC vs. Marvel crossover. Not only has he conquered the Titans being Marvel and DC, but he's also worked at CrossGen, Dark Horse, Dynamite Entertainment, Image Comics, Virgin Comics, Devil's Due Publishing's Aftermath line, and Valiant Comics on such titles as Scion, Mystic, Sojourn, The Path, Star Wars, Darth Maul, Samurai, Heaven and Earth, Blade of Komori, and Exo, Man of War. Just a small part of his list that is incredible long. A lifelong fan of the character The Phantom, Ron was the brains behind Moonstone Books' 2006 annual featuring The Phantom and was responsible for getting writers Chuck Dixon, Mike Bullock, Tony Bedard, and Raphael Neves to participate with chapters for the book. In 2002, he received a Harvey Awards nomination for Best Writer for his work on Scion, which was also nominated for Best Continuing Series. His most recent conquest is as editor of the Dreadstar Omnibus, a three-volume deluxe hardcover collection of writer-artist Jim Stalin's most famous famous comic book series, Dreadstar. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, Mr. Ron Mars. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Awesome, awesome. Glad to have you here. How's the weather where you are? Where are you? <laughs> I, am in, uh, I am in upstate New York, so it's a little nippier than I would like it to be. Oh, okay. Yeah, same here. I'm in Maine. <laughs> oh, so you, you know my pain. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we finally hit 40 out here in Illinois, so. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, last few days here hasn't been bad. It's been, you know, we've we're on the melting side of things, not the adding inches to the to the side of things. Uh, exactly. So, you know, um, sort of there's light at the end of the tunnel. I hope. Yeah, same here. Same here. It's looking like 40s for the next week, so I'm hoping hoping for that. <laughs> yeah, right. I was, you know, I was I was outside today in a you know in a t-shirt and it was like 35. I thought I, it was tropical today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's all it's all price conditioning. You know, we're conditioned to uh, be really warm on these days because of all the negative two degrees days that we've had previously. We just can't wait to get out. Oh, yeah. It's just it's it's hasn't been a great winter. You know, obviously you can't really go anywhere either. So the two of those things together, I, I've obviously gotten a lot of work done the last few months. Right, right. And that actually leads me. I was going to ask you. Um, so you've been able to successfully work from home during the whole pandemic thing? Yeah, I've been able to successfully work from home for the last thirty years, so this is <laughs> this is no different for me whatsoever. I, you know, I've been I've been quarantined, uh, you know, for three decades. That's amazing. <laughs> 
That's awesome. So, Ron, tell us about your path to becoming a comic book writer. Did you, were you the type of person you started writing as a young at a young age, or how did that come about? Yeah, like I, you know, I was a, I was the kid in you know in elementary school all the way up to high school that if you needed you know you needed help on your book report, you came to me. So I could you know I could always write. I was always a reader, and you know it, it just really never occurred to me to be anything else. Um, so by the time I was in college, I got a I got a part-time job at the local newspaper and I was a sports reporter and kept that job through college. And by the time I graduated, I was, you know, I just went full-time at the newspaper, uh, became the entertainment editor for the paper. And um, so that was my first real job. I was, you know, I was like an 18 year old kid working with, working with adult journalists, you know, actual professionals that, that really, showed me the ropes and, you know, taught me how to, uh, you know, taught me how to do that job and, and in general taught me how to write, taught me how to, um, write succinctly and write on deadline and, you know, the, the grammar, the punctuation, all of the stuff that you, you have to know, whether you're writing comics or newspaper articles about, you know, high school football games or whatever it was, you know, all of that sort of was, was in my background. And then, uh, I ended up getting led into comics by Jim Starlin creator of Thanos and Drax and Gamora and the Infinity Gauntlet that, you know, yep. maybe a few people have heard of now because, <laughs> because those movies made like, you know, uh, a few billion dollars at the box office. Right. Um, so I lived in the same area with Jim. We were friends, kind of moved in the same circles because I, I got to be friends with Bernie Wrightson, the you know legendary artist. And then Bernie kind of introduced me to the rest of the, of the social circle. And Jim and I just hit it off and, you know, have been friends ever since. So Jim was the one who kind of uh, led me by the hand into Marvel and said, you know, do you want to, you want to try writing comics? And, you know, that's, yeah, well, yeah, duh, of course. <laughs> and I was a comics fan and, and Jim, you know, co-wrote my first few jobs with me after I had copy edited his first prose novel. Wow. And that went well enough. And he, Jim was uh, pleased enough with it that he said, Hey, do you want to, you know, do you want to think about writing comics? And yeah, obviously yes. And, <laughs> and I've literally been doing it ever since. That's amazing. So that's, you know, that's the, that's the, that's not the breaking in story that anybody wants to hear because it can't be replicated. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> it's, it's not uh, who you are until you know, that's nothing. You well, know, you know, there, there, there's a certain amount of truth to the fact that, you know, it, it to a certain extent it's who you've met like this is a very social business like most other businesses and you know it's it's who you've met it's the connections you make there's you know there's networking in this business like any other maybe even more so than any other um it's a fairly small community of everybody kind of knows everybody else and um uh, you know you just uh you, you tend to you tend to work that network to to keep yourself in the business right and so, obviously, Jim Starlin sounds like a, a, a good guy, you know. How, how were, like, Bernie Wrightson and all these guys that you started off with, How what kind of people were they? Just great. I mean, the comics people in general are great. You have to love this to do this because it's hard, uh, particularly the art end of it. You know, this is – the comics artists are, to me, the special forces of, of any sort of artist. They, you know, because they have to draw everything. They have to draw everything well, and they have to do it on deadline – you know, they have to produce like a page a day. 
that's a lot of work. You know, it's a hell of a lot more work than doing in-betweens for animation or animation designs or production design on films or video games. Comic book artists are the guys down in the trenches who can who can do everything. So, you know, if you're in this business, like like nobody's here for the for the fame and the fortune for the most part. Uh, it uh, you, you do this because you love it. So, because of that, it, it ends up attracting people who who are good people and who who love the uh, who love the medium. So, um, I was very much welcomed kind of into that into that social circle, and you know, got an amazing education, both creatively and in in a how the business works how you know how how you get get along in comics how you navigate working at marvel and dc and uh, all of the you know all of the ins and outs to go with it so um i certainly wouldn't be where i am now i wouldn't be in this business at all without without jim starlin and bernie wrightson that's amazing so do you find um is there a particular artist or maybe several artists that you prefer to work with over others or, and you don't have to name names if you don't want to, but I mean, do you have sort of have like a pool of artists that you like to work with? Yeah. I mean, I tend to, you know, I tend to end up working with, you know, a number of the same people just because, you know, you click creatively. Bart Sears, um, Rick Leonardi, um, Daryl Banks on Green Lantern, Ron Lim on Silver Surfer. You know, those those are all sort of long term relationships. Those are people that I've known for years and, you know, end up in in, you know, at least weekly, if not daily contact with. You tend to go back to the same well when you click with somebody. But, you know, one of the one of the joys of doing this is is meeting different artists and working with different artists to see how that how that collaboration goes. Um, I did. uh uh, I did the Endless Winter crossover at DC in December, which was nine issues over five weeks. And, you know, one of the artists was Phil Hester, who's been a friend of mine for 20 years, and we've worked together a few times. So, you know, doing a Superman issue with him was awesome because we, you know, we're, you know, we sort of know each other. We know what each other is going to do. Right. I worked with uh, the, the first part of the, uh, the crossover was drawn by Howard Porter, who's a guy I've known for 25 years and we had never worked together before. So that was a treat. Um, and then a lot of the other artists were artists that I had never worked with before. And that's, you know, that's, a, uh, you know, that's a, uh, it's a learning process. It's like, you know, it's like going on first dates when you work with an artist on a project for the first time, you're, you're trying to figure out what they do best and you can play to that. And they're trying to figure out, you know, how you write your scripts and how they can plug into that. So, you know, to me, the, the, still the best moment of any comic project is when uh, is when the art starts to fill up your inbox and you're, you know, you're getting the pages back. The stuff that existed just in your head is now made real and concrete on the page. And there's, you know, there's nothing that can replace that. Do you find that when you're working like with a new artist that you haven't worked with before, that in your script you're putting a lot more visual description in than you would say a Bernie Wrightson whom you've worked with quite a bit, and they, you know, you have that synergy where he kind of knows what you're thinking and you kind of know what he's thinking. Yeah, I mean, I certainly like when when Bernie and I worked together. Um, he lived a mile and a half down the road from me, so I would just go over <laughs> to his studio and you know we'd hang out, and he'd do layouts and. You know, uh, so on the one hand, it was like my buddy Bernie. And on the other hand, it's like, oh, my God, it's Bernie Wrightson, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, but he was just like a dude. That I went out, you know, we, we'd go have, you know, we'd go have beers. 
So wow, there's a you know there's a weird there's a weird like you know Jim Starlin's still one of my best friends, and it's once in a while I step back and go, oh yeah, it's, it's Jim Starlin, not just you know, <laughs> dude that I've known for you know thirty years. I mean, I guess you tend to write differently for different artists. You 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 write towards the strengths. You try to you know the the first conversation is always, well, what do you want to draw and what do you not want to draw, and within reason you try to you know you try to play to that. Um, and you know some artists want you know more specific panel description and more details, and others you know like Rick Leonardi for instance that Rick and I worked on stuff. Um, you know, for years now together. Um, he's drawing a, he's drawing a graphic novel, um, that we're doing together for Naval Institute press right now. Rick, I just need to give sort of a, here's, you know, here's a description of what happens on the page. Go do what you do. Nice. And that's, you know, that's actually a lot of fun. It's almost like, you know, playing in a jazz combo where you're just riffing off of each other. And, you know, I give him some description and he, he figures out what the page is going to look like. And then it comes back to me for the dialogue. And it's, it's a very improvisational way to work and it's a lot of fun if you trust your partner, if you trust the artist that you're working with and they trust you. So it's, it's not the sort of thing you do on a, you know, on a, on a first date. Right. <laughs> but as you get used to working with, with artists, yeah, you, you, you know, you know how they're going to approach a page or how they want to approach a page. Um, when, when Daryl Banks and I did our story in the, Green Lantern 80th anniversary special earlier this year, you know, Daryl and I <clears throat> worked on Green Lantern together for seven years. And, wow. uh, you know, it was, it was just like slipping back into a, you know, comfy pair of jeans and a hoodie. It's just, you know, like he knows what I'm going to do. I know what he's going to do. It's, you know, it's really just a, you know, uh, you pick right up where you left, left off. I guess the, you know, I guess like riding a bicycle is the, you know, is the obvious phrase. Right, right. That's a great book, by the way. Yeah. Thanks. Um, sorry, Justin. I didn't mean to step on you there. Um, we, I think Justin, you and I both have had a chance recently to reread Batman Aliens, which yes. I really loved. <laughs> Absolutely. One thing, Ron, I loved how you you captured the character of Batman so perfectly in it, and I feel like a lot of today's Batman writers are are still drawing from that. Oh, I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm I'm obviously. You know, my Batman in that stands on the shoulders of Frank Miller's Batman and Denny O'Neill's Batman and, you know, and everybody, you know, right back to the to the golden age. So, you know, characters like Batman and Superman, you sort of um, you do your version, you do what you know, you do what feels comfortable to you and you and you pull from those sources. So, you know, I did my Batman. Somebody else does their Batman, especially Batman and Superman are are elastic enough as characters that you can kind of do your take and somebody else does theirs and it's different, but it still works because these are, you know, they're, they're sort of fictional icons at this point. They're not just right. characters. They're, they're, you know, probably two of the most famous characters in the world, along with um, Sherlock Holmes and Tarzan, maybe um, three right. years, maybe, uh, you know, like these are, these are characters that, everybody knows like you know i've been all over the world at conventions and you know obviously everybody knows batman and superman i was you know i was at a um i was at a convention in uh, nairobi kenya uh in 2019 wow. and obviously you know you're you know even though you're on the other side of the world you're you're in east africa you know everybody's walking around in a batman t-shirt that's crazy that's amazing <laughs> 
Oh my goodness. So how does something like Batman Aliens come about? And were there restrictions because of the of the property, like specifically with Aliens? Well, it, it came about because because Bernie and I were were in his car coming back from I think Manhattan. I think we were, we had, you know, been uh, in at one of the old conventions at the Javits Center. This is, you know, this is obviously in the in the nineties. And, you know, we we drove back together and we were just kicking around ideas for stuff that we could maybe work on together. And Bernie suggested, hey, what about Batman Aliens? And I thought, well, that would be awesome, but they'll never let us do it. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, they won't let us do it, but we can ask anyway. And so, you know, like like the next the next week, Bernie called um, Dark Horse, which had the Aliens license and. Uh, talked to Bob Shrek, who was our editor, out, our editor contact out there, just a great editor, and you know said, "Hey, is there any possibility of doing this?" And Bob said, oh, "Well, geez, I don't know. Let's, you know, let's let's run it through, let's run it through the proper channels and see." And lo and behold, Dark Horse and DC and 20th Century Fox all said yes. Wow! And then we're like, "Oh shit, we got to come up with a story now." <laughs> <laughs> Because we really had nothing more than, you know, Batman versus aliens. Because we didn't, you know, we honestly didn't think that that there was going to be any, you know, any real, really push to it. You know, we just figured that getting all three of those entertainment companies on the same page was not going to happen. Right. This predated the Predator story, right? Yeah, I think it, I think it was the first. I think it was the first crossover with you know with the with the Fox, you know, aliens, um, aliens, Predator universe, and and a a comic, uh, you know, comic character from another company. So, yeah, then we ended up, you know, Bernie and I ended up, well, all right, what do you, you know, what do you want to draw? And he said, well, I'm, you know, I don't want to draw any cars or buildings. <laughs> you know, Bernie was, Bernie was not a, like a straight edge guy. He was not, you know, he, he didn't want to get out the ruler to like to rule out buildings in perspective. <laughs> That's funny. You know, that's you know that's, had a lot of cars and swamp things so yeah yeah you know like swamp thing was you know, swamp thing was set in a swamp for a reason yeah right so um so I said all right well how about you know how about the jungle how about like Mayan ruins and stuff like that and uh, he said sure and then I don't I don't know like the like the big you know the big gimmick for the book was that you know that the alien had put a chest burster inside a uh, inside a crocodile, right, and produces this huge. Yeah, I think uh, it's crazy crocodile alien. You know, it's probably yeah. like probably one of the best double page spreads I've ever been in contact with in my career. Nice. And so I, I think that part of that was just um, when I was a kid, I had a, I had a big little book. I actually still have a copy of it. It was a Batman book with like a circus or a, it's like a circus and a zoo in it. And Batman had to like wrestle a lion and a cheetah and stuff like that. And that always made an impression on me. So like anytime I've written Batman, he ends up wrestling some sort of, you know, wild animal. So, <laughs> the, uh, so the, so the crocodile bit came from, you know, Oh, that'd be cool if Batman had to, you know, wrestle a croc. And so the, so the original art to that page where Batman actually wrestles, the the croc that later gets the the chest burster put into it um that page is hanging on my office wall wow oh that's great oh wow that's amazing so you've done other crossovers titles like you know batman tarzan claws of the catwoman uh darkness superman 
uh, Green Lantern, Silver Surfer. What is it about crossovers that you enjoy doing? Um, it, you know, more than anything, it's just the fact that you're you're telling a story that nobody's told before. When when you're putting together characters who have not met before, um, you're getting to do something completely new. So there's no, you know, you don't have to worry about uh, what precedent was set or what continuity is or anything like that. You can just you can just tell a new story. So, uh, you know, I ended up doing so many of them because I liked it. I would propose them or they would come to me. And and I I guess I had a, you know, hopefully still do, had a reputation for, um, you know, for being able to play well with others. Like, you, you know, you you have to make everybody happy, everybody in the room happy. That's what, you know, Marvel versus DC was that process writ large because we had to make all of the editors across both companies happy with the way we were using their characters. And so, you know, having, having a reputation as somebody that's, you know, somebody that's easy to work with and is not going to be a, you know, is not going to be a difficulty in terms of pulling all of these various characters together, probably, you know, probably helped me out quite a bit, but you know, yeah, it's just, it's just fun. Uh, you know, I would, uh, we, we did, um, you know, we did, Batman Tarzan. We didn't think we were going to get that approved. We did. Wow. And then I think Green Lantern Aliens came after Batman Tarzan. And and that was one where it just seemed an obvious one to do. Probably even more obvious than than Batman Aliens, at least from a story standpoint, not from a maybe as much commercial standpoint. Right. And that was one where I proposed it. And I think I think it was Dark Horse's turn, usually like the editorial. Um, the editorial aspects of those books would go for, for the crossovers that they would do. DC would run one and then Dark Horse would run one and DC would run one and Dark Horse would run, run one, even though they're obviously both approving uh, everything along the way. But the the bulk of the editorial work was done by one or the other. And I seem to end up on stuff that generally got handled at Dark Horse. Hmm. So for Green Lantern Aliens, that was one where I proposed it and then I never heard anything. Um, I, th I think I actually proposed it at DC and DC, you know, it turned out that it was Dark Horse's turn to do the next one. So, you know, like a month goes by and I hadn't heard anything and I just figured it was dead. We weren't going to do it. And then, then an editor from Dark Horse called me up and said, hey, when am I going to get this script? <laughs> and I was like, well, what script are you talking about? And he's like, you know, Green Lantern Aliens, we got to get going. This thing is on the schedule. And I'm like, oh, maybe somebody should have told me. <laughs> so, you know, it was one of those things where DC thought Dark Horse had told me and Dark Horse thought DC had told me. And, you know, suddenly we had a book that was that needed to get done in the in the relative near future. So we had to just go, 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 go. And, and you know, and thankfully, I think that was the first time I worked with Rick Leonardo. So um, thankfully, Rick's schedule was was clear. And we just we ended up with just a terrific team on that book. Yeah, the art's great. Rick Leonardi penciling and Mike Perkins inking and uh, Dave Stewart coloring. It's, you know, it's really one of my favorite jobs ever. Nice. It's a deeper book, too, because it, it goes into the morality of, you know, ex exterminating an alien sentient life form. And then it, it has like this sort of undertone of still Kyle being in Hal's shadow, even though Hal is terrible. I'll just put that out there. But Kyle is great. So, and he just doesn't get out of that shadow. And everyone's like, well, Hal did it this way. It's like, well, Hal's not here. I'm all you got. And, and I really right. appreciate that aspect of Kyle because he never tried to be anything other than himself. And he's just such a great character. Thanks. I, I appreciate that. The, 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 
yeah, the opportunity to do that book allowed us to obviously to, you know, compare and contrast the two gave me an opportunity to sort of write Hal in his prime, which, which I always enjoyed. Yeah. And get, you know, <laughs> and get green arrow and, and black canary in there as well. Oh, so awesome. <laughs> um, nice. And Rick just, you know, Rick just, just did masterful work on those pages. And then, and then, you know, so it, it was the, you know, it was the high school book report deal. It was the compare and contrast, you know, how does, you know, how did Hal handle this and how did Kyle handle this? And ultimately like a spoiler, spoiler on a 20 year old comic, <laughs> you know, Kyle decides to, to like wipe out the aliens. Cause, cause what else are you going to do? And that's, right. that's not how, that's not how the end was envisioned. Huh. When I initially pitched it, you know, he ended up making the same choice as Hal, which was, you know, which was to, you know, you can't just end, end this life because they're, you know, they're basically like sharks. They just do what they do. And the end didn't work. So, and, and I, for that fourth issue script, I ended up wrestling with the ending quite a bit because it just, every time I wrote it, it didn't ring true. Like right. it, everything that they had been through in the series led you to the, you know, led you dramatically to the conclusion that where we were headed. But finally, I, you know, I, I called the editor at Dark Horse, Dave Landon. I was like, dude, I think I think I got to kill them all, you know, and he was like, <laughs> OK, that sounds fine. <laughs> oh, no, there'll never be any more aliens. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like if, if if that's what works, go ahead and do it and, and I'll get it approved. And that's exactly what happened. It was, you know, it was one of those things where the, you know, usually when you when you do a story, when you do a script, you kind of know where you're starting and you know generally where you're going to end. And then the the journey in the middle is is the part where you figure out how to get from one to the other. Um, and, right. and this one, you know, the ending was, you know, the ending was figured out and it just wasn't the ending we ended up doing because it wasn't the right one. Huh. On um on DC versus Marvel, I mean, obviously you said you, you were able to work well with, I mean, you had two companies to work with to deal with all these characters. That was challenging enough probably, but how much more difficult did, um, did they make things when they made it, uh, the outcome put it to a vote to the readers? Um... I mean, it wasn't really that much more difficult. And, and honestly, all of the editors involved were great because they were very much directed from the top down to say, you know, look, this is a big, you know, popcorn tentpole sort of sort of story. Like, don't get don't get caught up in the details. Like, this is supposed to be a, <laughs> a, a, a broad, entertaining story for everybody. Oh, OK. So all of the editors are really well behaved um, as supervised by Mark Grunewald at Marvel and Mike Carlin at DC. So in, in that sense, like everything that, everything that we did um, pretty much went through as is. There was no real pushback on any of it. And certainly, you know, look, Peter, David, and I writing alternating issues, we were both working at Marvel and DC regularly anyway. That's one of the reasons that we ended up with the gig is that we, we were working at both companies. We knew both companies. Both companies were comfortable with us. So that's, you know, that's one of the, uh, one of the benefits of sort of, you know, tilling soil in, in both of those fields at the same time. Nice. Yeah, I, re I remember that. I was very excited to see uh, that Marvel and DC were going to, you know, combine together finally. You know, it was one of those things we had waited for for a long time. Oh, I, I, this is, you know, I've told the story before, but it's, it's the honest to God truth. I remember being like 10 years old and writing a letter to Marvel and a letter to DC. And, and those, those remain my only letter of comment to Marvel and DC. You know, as like a 10-year-old kid, 
suggesting to both companies that that the Avengers and the Justice League should meet, because wow. obviously no one had ever thought of this. <laughs> like in my ten year old wisdom, I figured <laughs> I figured I I need to tell them about this because this is a really good idea, and obviously they're not doing it. So you know, I I should I should alert them to to, to what they're missing out on. <laughs> But that sort of passion is what comes through in something like this. When you get to play in in that sandbox, you're like, well, wouldn't it be cool if, you know, Spider-Man had to fight the Joker and Batman had to fight, you know, like, wouldn't that be neat if they got to kind of like cross pollinate? I I think that's that's like that spark. Yeah, that's ultimately what the whole thing was. It was uh, wouldn't it be cool if and then the if was everything that we did. And it was the, you know. It was the big battles and the little battles and the, you know, the team ups that we showed for just one panel. Yeah. You know, we tried to, we tried to. Poor Namor. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so <laughs> we tried to have, uh, we tried to have, you know, to cover as many bases as possible, even though, you know, obviously, you know, we had, I don't know what it was, 140 pages or 150 pages or whatever it was total. You know, we could have had 10 times that many pages and still not done not have done everything that we would have wanted to do but you know we we did what we could in the space that we had and um you know just the way it was structured we knew okay these battles have to end up you know the the sort of the preliminary battles have to wind up three and three in terms of who wins and then you know then the the five big battles all landed in my lap in issue three so i had to i had to get all of those you know all of those out of the way and I had to write two different endings for each of those five battles. Wow. Oh, wow. Because, I mean, ultimately we knew that, look, you know, Batman's going to beat Captain America. Um, and, <laughs> and Superman's going to beat the Hulk. And, you know, it was, you know, basically popularity contest for everybody. And right. because it was, you know, because it was up for a vote. The only one that we weren't really sure on was Storm Wonder Woman, um, because that was sort of a toss up. It was the, you know, oh, well, you know, Wonder Woman's an icon, but Storm's in the X-Men. The X-Men was the biggest book in the world at that point. So um, we just didn't know how that one was going to go. And I think the votes were fairly close on that. Um, wow. So that's, you know, so I ended up writing two different endings for every battle, um, basically. And, and we ended up having having those two different endings drawn. There's still talk on this today about the, uh, the Wolverine and the Loki, or uh, the Lobo. You know, just how it ended up behind the bar and all that, and then just Wolverine comes up afterwards. Still to this day, there's people talking about, I don't know, I don't know what happened, I don't know what's going on, and, you know. Yeah, I, I actually said this on Twitter the other, like, couple weeks ago or last week, that that I will be on my deathbed, and somebody will come into the room and go, hey, <laughs> Wolverine didn't really be Lobo, right? Uh, <laughs> You're like, it wasn't me, it was the same people that killed Jason Todd. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> So, yeah, people, I, honest to God, people still bring that up, you know, on social media, in person, at shows, back in the halcyon days when there were shows. Um, hilarious. So, yeah, it's just like, look, I, you know, I get it. It's, but, you know, talk to the people that voted. And honestly, if, you know, they went behind the bar because we, we uh, or at least I, wanted to, wanted to pay off those battles with as little redrawing as possible. So the the idea that we could replace like at most a page, but even if we could get away with it, half a page of art to swap in once we got the once we got the vote totals, right? You know that's why Superman pounds the Hulk into a mountain, and then or Superman and the Hulk end up um, crashing into a mountain, and the mountain comes down on top of them, and then 
Superman rises from the rubble. Well, you know, there's a version of that page with the Hulk rising from the rubble. And it's just, oh, okay. you know, so it's not, it's not a completely redrawn page. It's just some of the page that got redrawn. And the same thing for Wolverine Lobo. That was actually, to me, that was actually the, that was actually the, the one that we did the least redrawn for. Cause um, I was like, oh, you know, let's have them go behind the bar and one, you know, they're both sort of drinkers and carousers. Yeah. They both smoke cigars. So yeah. Let's, let's pay that off. Of course, this was, you know, this was 25 years ago and you could actually have characters in your comic smoking cigars. Right. <laughs> so now this led into the amalgam series of books that they did. Did you, did you have to have some foresight, you know, moving into that or was that someone else that sort of took the baton and, and carried it forward? Well, that was, um, uh, the first meeting that we had for Marvel versus DC actually, um, that actually took place at Mark Grunewald's apartment in Manhattan because they didn't want us meeting on site at either, at either publisher, um, because they were afraid that people were going to start putting two and two together. Like, Oh, smart. The editorial staffs at the, at the companies didn't know this was going on. They told nobody. So, so we actually wow. met at, at Mark's apartment and talked about all this stuff and then went and had, you know, went and had um, lunch at a Mexican restaurant around the corner and continued to plot it out. But at that initial meeting is when, you know, obviously doing Marvel versus DC, <clears throat> okay, they're going to fight. Like that's, you know, it's comics. They're going to fight each other. Duh. So <laughs> when, when Mike and Mark actually said, this is what's going to happen in between the third and fourth issues and told us about the Amalgam universe. I mean, I was slack jawed. I was just like, you're kidding. Like we're actually going to do this. <laughs> it, it, I mean, to me, it was just a delightful concept to, to, mash the characters together nobody you know nobody saw it coming nobody ever you know the expected thing is you know there's going to be a big fight not that everything's going to get smushed together and we're going to do you know we're going to do amalgamated versions of of the two universes um it was just so much fun and then they had mike and mark had the list prepared already of what 12 books were were going to be in the amalgam release um so you know, Dark Claw and Super Soldier and all that stuff was was already sort of figured out. And when they got to Strange Fate on the list, I said, "Oh, I'm I'm doing that one, or I'm walking out of the room right now." <laughs> nice. <laughs> and obviously, that was a lie because I wasn't walking out of the room, you know, <laughs> and passing on the opportunity. Um, but I was like, "Oh, I got to do that one." And and they were like, "Okay, fine, you can do that one." That's awesome. And so, yeah, so that was, you know, like obviously still one of my favorite projects ever is that is that single issue of Dr. Strange Fate. And and also the like one of the only times I've ever had stage fright writing a writing a comic like like the the whole Marvel versus DC Batman fighting Captain America, Superman fighting the Hulk. Like none of that. Like I just sat down and did that. That was that was easy peasy writing Dr. Strange Fate because I knew that Jose Luis Garcia Lopez was going to draw it, who to me is one of the, you know, the comics oh, yeah. geniuses of, of the medium ever. Oh yeah. And then, and then Kevin Nolan inking it um, because, you know, Kevin's, a, Kevin's a, a pretty good friend. So I wasn't really intimidated by Kevin, but I was sure as hell intimidated by Garcia Lopez. And I sat around for like two weeks trying to, trying to make sure that, you know, well, I had to, I had to write a script that was worthy of Garcia Lopez. I can't, you know, I can't 
come with my B game. I got to I got to bring my A game for Garcia Lopez. And I just put all of this pressure on myself and I didn't get anything done for like two weeks. And the editor, the, the editor whose idea it was to put um, Jose on it in the first place. Uh, I went into the office, you know, for a meeting after after the offices knew what we were doing. And Dan Thorslin was the editor. And I went into his office and um, to, to talk about that because they basically told him, look, you know, Ron's going to write this one. Um, so I went into Dan's office and I said, look, I don't, you know, I don't really care who you get the pencil, but Kevin Nolan's got to ink it because he's the doc, you know, he's like the best Doctor Strange artist ever. And he's like, that's cool. How about Garcia Lopez to pencil it? And I was like, holy shit, really? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, like within an hour, he had called both Kevin and Jose and it was done. And then I had to go home and write it. And I, you know, I was, yeah, you know, I was, I, I was stalled for two, maybe even three weeks to do the thing. And then lo and behold, I, I finally realized that like I could write the worst script in the world. Like I could write the, you know, I could write the, you know, Westchester phone book and, <laughs> and they would hand it to Garcia Lopez and it would look awesome. It would be brilliant. <laughs> like, so I was really incidental to the process. So once I, once I came to that conclusion of like, Oh, I don't really need to worry about it. Cause I'm just going to ride the coattails of two genius artists. I sat down and wrote the script in like two days. Nice. That's awesome. <laughs> That's amazing. So when you were at DC, um, when you started, was uh, Julie Schwartz still there or, or Jeanette Kahn? Were they still there? Um, Jeanette was still there. Julie was gone because I started at Marvel. I mean, literally my first gig in comics was at Marvel. And I was there for the first few years of my career and then sort of migrated over to DC um, doing some Green Lantern quarterly stories and then obviously being offered the Green Lantern Monthly. So Jeanette was still there, but I think I think she left not too long after I started working at DC. I'm not I'm not sure of the timing exactly, but for you know, for most of my tenure at DC, Paul Levitz was the guy. And and Paul was when they when DC called me to offer me Green Lantern, Paul was in the room. So he was certainly the, you know, he was certainly the the guiding hand. And at Marvel, did you work with um? You worked with Jim Shooter, obviously, right? When you started there. No, Shooter had Shooter was gone. I started at Marvel in 1990, and Shooter was gone uh, oh, okay. shortly shortly before that. Um, to, to to everyone's sigh of of relief, I think, because um, you know, <laughs> Jim was Jim was kind of an editorial hard ass. Yeah. And the editors, you know, the editors ran in fear from him. But um, so I, yeah, I I kind of slid in after after Jim was um after jim was gone he had probably started valiant at that point yeah yeah he was over at valiant tom defalco was the editor-in-chief when i started at marvel oh okay okay and did you end up working with jim when you did the titles over at valiant um no again jim jim left valiant by the time i got over there um oh, okay. uh, he, he must must have thought i was stalking him for a while <laughs> <laughs> so 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 jim uh yeah jim Jim had left Valiant, and when I got to Valiant, they had just been bought out by, I don't even remember. Acclaim? Um, whatever. Uh, yeah, Acclaim, Acclaim had bought them out. So there was there was money to to do a lot of stuff. Um, there was money to, you know, we basically relaunched the whole line at Valiant. And I had a, you know, I had a ball doing it. We actually, like, hired our own editor over from Marvel to work at Valiant. Lanair Bruce was my Silver Surfer assistant editor, and Valiant needed somebody to edit 
EXO for Bart Sears and Andy Smith and I. And we were like, well, go hire this, you know, go hire Lanier from uh, from Marvel. And they did, although it took took a while for her to, to get into place. So I think the first two or three, the first two or three issues of, of EXO, we didn't have an editor. We just did it. Hmm. That's interesting. And you've got a lot of um, creator-owned books, uh, including, you know, Dragon Prince for Top Cow and, you know, Samurai Heaven and Earth for Dark Horse. Do you prefer creator-owned work since you have control over everything, or is it just as fun to play in the other company's sandboxes like Marvel and DC? Um, they're both fun, but they're just different kinds of fun. I mean, I, you know, I, I like pizza and I like steak. I, you know, I don't want to eat just one. <laughs> right. But, you know, creator, I always, I always feel like the, the thing that I always liken it to is work for hire is is a job, and it's a great job. Playing with Batman and Superman and Silver Surfer and you know whatever creator whatever work for hire stuff you do, you know Star Wars, I've written Star Wars and Conan and you know Skylanders for IDW, like all of that stuff is great and it's a really good job. But it's it's a job. It's not a career per se because there's always you know, there's always somebody that's going to come along and, and do that job after you. Right. You know, you're, you, nobody's ever the permanent writer on Batman. You have, you play with the toys for a while and then somebody else comes in and plays with the toys. Uh, so I think it's, it's a, always a good idea to balance work for hire stuff, which is, you know, you get, you get paid, you make royalties and it's just, you know, it's just absolutely delightful to be able to play with all those toys. But you balance that against create your own stuff, which which you own. I mean, ultimately, you you own that material, and nobody, you know, on your creator own stuff, nobody's going to come in and write it after you. It's yours, and you you reap the benefits of that. You know, Robert Kirkman is Robert Kirkman because not because he wrote Ultimate X Men for a year and a half. <laughs> you know, he's hey, someone else remembered that. All right. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, he's you know he is who he is, and was able to you know obviously be vastly successful and start his own imprint and all of that stuff because of his creator own work, because of walking dead and invincible and everything else. So, you know, I always think it's, it's, it's easier for writers to do both of those things um, because writers are obviously always working on multiple projects uh, or at least those that are, those of us who are fortunate enough to be working on multiple projects. So you can do, you can do the creator own stuff next to the work for hire stuff. And, you can sort of play on both of those courts. It's a little tougher for artists because you can kind of only do one job at a time as an artist. It's labor intensive enough that you can't really, you know, you're, you're not going to be drawing two monthly books at a, at a time. There's, you know, the guys that can actually do that. You can count on, on one hand minus a few fingers. It's very rare for somebody to be able to produce more pages than that per month. So it's, that's one of the real benefits of being a writer is that you can, you can do the work for higher stuff while you're working on your creator own stuff. And, uh, you, you fill your library and, you know, by library, I mean, you, you know, the stuff that's yours, the creator own stuff, when right. you've got five or 10 or 20 properties, those are yours forever. And you, you know, you build your library as you go. So when you're working on something like a Star Wars title, like the Darth Maul titles, do you find that when, as opposed to, say, working for a Marvel or a DC where, you know, the characters are always in-house and this is something that's more, say, licensed to the company, are there restrictions, or like a laundry list of restrictions or characters and situations that you can or cannot use? Not really. I mean, it ultimately depends on who the licensor is. You know, 
when I was doing Star Wars, Lucasfilm got comics. They, you know, they understood comics. They know how they, they knew how they worked. And generally once, like once I had their confidence that I knew what I was doing, they kind of left me alone. You know, they, they trusted me to do the job. You will get other licensors that you work for and they don't really understand how comics work as well as you would hope that they would. So there's always kind of fingers in your pie. There's always um, somebody looking over your shoulder. So I, you know, Star Wars, for instance, I found no difference, no different than really writing for Marvel or DC. Um, it, in some ways, it was actually easier than writing for Marvel or DC because Marvel and DC's continuity don't make sense. <laughs> you know, like like Batman's still thirty-five and he showed up in nineteen thirty-nine. Right. So, like, as I'm not going to argue. I'm a like, fan of Convergence. So, yeah, yeah, like none of none of the stuff makes any sense, right? In, in terms of being one long epic story. But the Star Wars stuff actually does because, right. you know, there was a timeline. And, you know, when I was working on uh, Star Wars Empire, I, you know, I was working in the in the period between A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back. So I knew exactly where my beginning point was and where my ending point was in terms of where I could tell stories. Um, so in some ways, Star Wars was easier because it made sense. It, but in the long run, it, they're really not that different um, because because frankly, everybody goes, oh, you know, like Star Wars or, or, you know, Star Trek, those are licensed properties. They must be must be much tougher. Right. And I'm like, what do you think Batman and Superman and X-Men are? They're licensed properties, too. They just, you know, you just happen to be working for the people that own the license. So it's to me, it was it was really no different other than, you know, whoever was the approvals person on the owner's end of things, if they didn't really, you know, if you weren't on the same page as them, it could be, it could be difficult. And I've had, I've had some of those instances where you just didn't get onto the same page with the people that were, were charged with approvals. And if they didn't understand how comics worked, there was always grief. There was always, well, you know, they would get to the end of a book, like the, you know, the book would be finished and they go, Oh, we, you know, we want to change some things. Like, can you fix this? And, and can you fix this in post? And we're like, yeah, that's not really how it works here. Uh, okay. right. <laughs> There's no post here. Once it's drawn, it's drawn. Oh, man. Greetings. This is Mr. Lobo. Are you a Sinsomniac? Do you stay up late and watch what normal people call bad movies till dawn? Black and white low-budget pot boilers, box office bombs, West German talking car movies, rock bands versus monster movies, broken down school films, midget zombie and midget spy flicks, guys in gorilla suit movies, even old TV commercials, inappropriate cartoons, drive-in snack bar ads, and worse? <clears throat> well, we like to say they're not bad movies just misunderstood stay up late with miss mittens your host mr lobo and a revolving door of special guests fellow horror movie hosts robot monsters and lovely real seven girls for a late night tv slumber party that we call cinema insomnia you can watch us on channel osi 74 for roku we even have some episodes on amazon and alpha video dvd you may never get a good night's sleep again Prepare for 
for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here are your hosts, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher. Or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio! Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. So I I do have a a couple of questions for you that are not comic related so let's step away from comics for just a brief moment i got a couple of deep dive questions that i'm curious about um can you tell us anything about this star wars vader extinction that you wrote for a spanish company in 2008 was it a movie or what was it it's um it's actually I, i guess it's an adaptation of a star wars tale star wars tales two parter that i did that were that ended up in Star Wars Tales one and two, drawn by Claudio Castellini. Um, so it looks amazing. Hmm. So it's it's basically it's basically an adaptation of the comic that I wrote that I didn't have any idea existed until somebody told me it was like I on my IMDb. Right. And, right. and I've and I've honestly I've never seen it. I have no idea what it is. 
But as far as I know, it's an adaptation of the comic, which is actually not even an, an in-continuity comic in that sense, because Star Wars Tales was a, you know, was sort of non-canon stories. Although every time I did a story for Star Wars Tales, I wrote it basically so that it was in canon anyway. If you wanted to make it your, if you wanted to make it into your head canon, it, it they would they would fit properly. Oh, that's cool. And what can you tell us about the um, the Marvel Ultimate Alliance two game that you wrote? Um, yeah, I wrote it. <laughs> Thank you for that game. <laughs> it was I, th- I think that was my first video game gig, and it it was actually produced by a company called Vicarious Visions which is based here in Albany, New York, um, and is still based in Albany, New York. So I got a call from, from an ex-Marvel editor named Evan Skolnick, who I, you know, I think I did, had done a, you know, like a short story or two or something like that for Evan when he was on staff up at Marvel. And um, this was post-CrossGen, so we had, moved, we had just moved back to New York State from the godless wastelands of Florida, which, (laughs) which, which would actually be really good right now since it's, you know, 25 degrees. Right. So I had run into a, an artist named John Hebert, like in Starbucks or something, just a, you know, a guy who I had known back in the nineties who had gotten out of comics and was working for working for the state or something like that. We just bumped into him and he's like, Oh, are you back? And you know, I just, I said, yeah, you know, back doing comics and, and he knew Evan that was working at uh, Vicarious Visions, and Evan called me and said, "Hey, do you want to, you know, do you want to write some some video game dialogue? Do you want to, you know, help us do this Marvel Ultimate Alliance game?" So I ended up going into their office and meeting with them, and you know, and obviously I knew more about comics than anybody in the building except Evan because uh, I had been working on them. Right. So I I did. Um, I did a bunch of dialogue for Marvel Ultimate Alliance, uh, and it was uh, it was actually a lot of fun. And a lot of it was just like coming up with four or five or six different ways to have a character deliver a specific line. Like you know, like Doctor Doom, you know, celebrates his victory, and you come up with six different ways for him to say that, so that the you know, so that the game doesn't repeat the same line every time. There's like branching dialogue. So that was really my That's first cool. video game stuff, and. And then for Vicarious, I ended up working on Ultimate Alliance 2, the Spider-Man, Spider-Man 2 video game. So I ended up writing dialogue that I guess got read by, um, got read by Toby. And wow. I forget who, I forget who played Venom in that movie. Oh, it was um, Topher Grace. Oh uh, yeah, right. Topher Grace. Um, so yeah, I wrote a bunch of dialogue that, that ended up getting delivered and some of it ended up getting cut by those guys. And then, uh, so I'm, I'm still, you know, Vicarious Visions is still here in a in a beautiful new office that they can't go to because because of COVID. <laughs> I was brought in on a on more projects by a friend named Dave Rodriguez, who I had actually you know this this is sort of an illustration of how everybody ends up knowing everybody. Is when I was at CrossGen, we did what were called motion comics, but it was basically like pan and scan comics from from the artwork. And that was produced by a company called High Voltage just outside of Chicago. And hmm. High Voltage, you know, being a video game company, but also did production and sound design and all that stuff on the, on these. They were essentially DVDs that that, uh, that CrossGen produced, uh, which I, I think I still have a like a complete set of downstairs. There's some of them are online too. If you if you look up some of the like Sojourn and Scion and some of the other CrossGen titles. They're you know right. on YouTube now. You can actually watch them. Oh, that's cool. So one of the people at High Voltage 
ended up being this guy, Dave Rodriguez, who I had met at the Chicago convention a few years before that, when he came and had his Cyan issues signed. So I ended up being friends with Dave. And then lo and behold, Dave ended up moving to Albany to work for Vicarious Visions. And I just like stumbled into him one day. And I'm like, <laughs> don't you live in Chicago? What are you doing here? Like, oh, I live here now. So, you know, so, so Dave is now the narrative director at Vicarious Visions and they've brought me in to work on, you know, a number of different Skylanders games and some other stuff that they, they're part of Activision now, Activision Blizzard. So I've worked on a bunch of different stuff for them over the years and, and hopefully we'll do so again. It's just, you know, it's, it's a really good, it's a really fun gig and um, Vicarious just, you know, treats everybody tremendously well. They're, they're a lot of fun to work for. Skylanders was such a good idea. You know, just like taking the physical aspect of it and, and making it there for kids. My um, my nephews were obsessed with this stuff. It um, Well, in a lot of ways, Crushton was sort of ahead of its time in terms of trying to trying to take the material that we were producing and put it on as many different platforms as possible. Single issues, collected editions, small size digest editions, digital. I think they were one of the first places to do, you know, to do comics online. And then did this sort of motion comics thing. They did um, they did school tutorials with uh, with a bunch of their books. So that you know, in, in a lot of ways, the stuff that CrossGen was doing then is widespread now. We just we just ran out of money before uh, yeah. before they could really make their mark. No, I read that CrossGen was bought by Disney and then slid over to to Marvel. Is is there still anything in the works with them? Um. Yeah, I mean, CrossGen was bought by Disney for, I believe, a cool million dollars um, wow. and when you know everything was going into the bankruptcy. Marvel bought CrossGen because they wanted to get their hands on a J.M. DeMattis, Mike Klug project called A Batazad, which, okay. which is a terrific little book. Um, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's ever been reprinted as a as a collection or not, but it was just it was just gorgeous. It was this sort of Oz-like fantasy world and, you know, this lush artwork by, by Mike Plug, And that's what Disney wanted. Essentially, Disney, want, Disney was willing to pay a million bucks for that. And everything else was kind of a toss-in. Hmm. So they bought, they bought the whole kit and caboodle. And ultimately, I don't think they really knew what they had. They were just interested in a couple of different things. And all the rest of them just kind of sat there. So when, when Disney bought Marvel... Somebody at Disney remembered, oh, didn't we buy another co comic company at some point? <laughs> Marvel. So Marvel did, you know, Marvel did some reboots of a few, a few different pieces of it um, that never really took off. They were different enough from the original cross-gen concepts that Marvel wasn't appealing to the old fans and the new fans who weren't familiar with cross-gen didn't care about the stuff anyway. So it was, hmm. you know, it was neither fish nor fowl, so nobody really paid attention to it. And, and now it just kind of sits. I mean, at, at one point I had a discussion with Marvel about bringing back sort of the cross-gen universe in a big, in a big crossover uh, as part of one of Marvel's events. We we're going to do a like separate miniseries and actually got fairly, uh, fairly far down the road on it um, before the editor that I was working with ended up getting transferred out to, uh, out to LA rather than on staff at Marvel. And without a patron to, to push it, the whole, the whole thing just kind of died. Right, right. So um, what can you tell us about uh, Witchblade? Because it seems like that's 
really close to you know near and dear to your heart because you keep going back to it what's what's the appeal for you for witchblade um i just you know i ended up just liking the character and the concept a bunch because they were very elastic i could do any kind of story i wanted to with witchblade really i could do supernatural horror crime procedural i could sort of brush up against superhero stuff with some of the other top cow characters so I could tell a whole range of stories. And, and I really like the main character. I like Sarah Pizzini a lot. She was a very real person to me, or at least I tried to make her into a very real person. And um, it was, you know, I had never read an issue of Witchblade in my life when they offered me the book. And Top Cow very much let me do, let me do what I do. They were very supportive of just, you know, just take the book and run with it. And um, it turned out to be just a great fit. So I ended up writing it for the better part of 10 years. Wow. That's amazing. Did you have any hand in the, in the TV show that they had done? No, I had, I had um, other than watching the premiere, uh, no hand at all. The show was over with by the time, by the time I took over the book, the show was long gone. And uh, I was actually, it's funny. I was supposed to, I was supposed to do a convention appearance with, with Yancey Butler, who played Sarah Pizzini in the TV show, somewhere, I forget, maybe New Hampshire, or, you know, it was it was not terribly far afield. And then she ended up having to cancel, and the show called me up and, and was like, you know, if you, if you want to come, you can still come. But, you know, without her here, maybe there's not as much interest in Witchblade, so we'll save it for another time. I think <laughs> we, just, we just scrapped it. But... Yeah, at some point, maybe I'll get to actually do a, you know, actually get to do a convention panel with her or something like that. Because she was actually an actress that I that I liked anyway from, uh, I believe she was on NYPD Blue. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's true. So, now, obviously, I know that you're um, a huge fan of The Phantom because you wrote some of that stuff for Moonstone. I read that you were supposed to write some prose novels for them, too, about The Phantom. Did that ever come about? Um no, I ended, up, I ended up never doing it. Like, so the Phantom is a is an itch that I've always wanted to scratch. I like all of that pulp stuff very much. So you know, the Phantom, Tarzan, John Carter, the Shadow, Doc Savage, like all of that oh, yeah. stuff was on my bucket list to do. Like, I got to do at least once, and and I think I've been able to check that off. Everybody except uh, Doc Savage. Hmm. So the company called Moonstone had the uh, the Phantom license, and and I, I knew a guy named Mike Bullock who was doing some stuff for him, and we just ended up talking. I'm like, well, you know, look, I know Moonstone doesn't have a lot of money, and they don't pay great rates, but I'm willing to do a you know I'm willing to do a Phantom annual or something like that, just to get my hands on the character for once. Nice. So we ended up working it out so that. And I and I and I lured in a bunch of buddies like like Mike and Chuck Dixon and Raphael and and Tony Bedard. So we split up like a forty-eight page story so that everybody everybody did a chunk of the story and it took place in different eras. Um, so that you know, so that frankly nobody was working for like really low rates for forty-eight pages. We we're all working for really low rates for like eight or ten pages. Oh cool. So I still got to, you know, I got to scratch my Phantom Itch and work with a buddy named uh, Ruben Procopio, who's also a big Phantom fan. Uh, Ruben is an ex-Disney animator. So we got to, you know, that was our chance to work together on on the opening chapter of the story. Uh, and I still, I really remember that that gig fondly. It just turned out great. That's amazing. 
That's amazing. I, uh, one other obscure question for you here. Um, you wrote Beyond for Virgin Comics, which was supposed to be uh, four issues. I guess it was created by Deepak Chopra, but they only published three of them. What What's the story there? Um, I the it's it was an adaptation of a screenplay that Deepak Chopra wrote. Oh, okay. And Deepak's son Gotham, who is you know now doing sports films and you know just a really good dude. Gotham's the one who brought me into the company to. I did. I did a fair amount of editing for them, as well as uh, as well as writing stuff for them. So that's how that connection happened. He was a fan of my cross gen stuff, and we were introduced by like a mutual friend. And we got on well, and they brought me in. So they had so they had this screenplay that his dad had written, and they wanted me to adapt it to a to a comic. So so I did, and I I believe the fourth the fourth issue was done, and it's I think you can get it on Comicsology. I believe that the whole thing eventually got completed. Oh, good. So it was it was Virgin Comics at the time, and then you know after a certain amount of time, when you had to show a profit in order to you know keep keep using the Virgin name because they were funded by Richard Branson, and they got to the end of that period, and and Branson decided not to, not to re up the deal. So I think that's why the last one, that's why the last one never came out. But like the people that ran Virgin were very good to me and, and still are, they're now uh, liquid comics and they still do a lot of stuff in India. And I've done a number of books with them in the time since. And eventually that, that last issue of beyond got done and it's really a nice little package. I wish, I actually wish we would be able to like print that in a trade paperback or something. Cause the, the, the story was cool. It was very sort of metaphysical and, um, it was very real world, but also metaphysical at the same time. And the um, the art by an artist named Edison George was just terrific. That's awesome. So let's move on to the Dreadstar Omnibus. How did that come about? Well, you know, Jim Starlin and I hang out, and <laughs> <laughs> eventually, you know, we got talking about, well, do you want to, you know, do you want to put Dreadstar out again in, in a couple of big fat hardcovers? And he said, yeah, and. You know, so we ended up we ended up doing that at uh, at Ominous Press, and Jim ended up doing like all of the like the refurbishment, all of the all of the remastering of it. Uh, went in and we we fixed typos. He he recolored a lot of stuff. He took out some recap pages uh, that you know when you put the whole thing together in a like a five hundred page hardcover, some of it's redundant because you don't need the recap pages because you know it's not a monthly product anymore right so we ended up you know publishing like 1500 pages it's all the Dreadstar stuff that jim wrote and drew and then the stuff that jim wrote that other artists worked on as well so it it it's about 1500 pages in three uh three hardcover volumes and uh there's a slipcase version too that's just really gorgeous the, the covers are new by jim uh, the slipcase has new new Jim art on it, and and for a while that looked like the last art that Jim was going to do because he had an accident with a um, with a, a soda stream machine, um, huh. a uh, a cartridge, uh, CO two cartridge ended up blowing up on him and taking a chunk out of his drawing hand. Oh wow! Ooh. Oh my god! And so it looked for a while. Well, for for one, it was it looked like Jim was really lucky to be alive because it just you know. It was an accident. There was basically shrapnel everywhere. 
Um, oh my God. And uh, took a chunk out of his drawing hand. And Jim really felt like he was not going to be able to draw anymore. Um, that was just going to be the end of it. He was just going to be a writer. But little by little, he got, you know, and this took a couple of years for him to, you know, sort of get back into, get back into drawing shape. And the more he did it, the, the, you know, the more he did it, the more he did it. Um, he could, you know, he said he would initially, he could, he could pencil for like 10 or 15 minutes and his, the muscles in his hand would cramp up so bad that he had to stop for the day. And then, you know, 10 minutes became 30 minutes and 30 minutes became an hour. And little by little, he built up, he built himself back up so that now he's, you know, he's just completed a brand new Dreadstar graphic novel that we published. It's a hundred pages called obviously Dreadstar Returns. And, uh, and I can neither confirm nor deny that Jim is drawing the second volume of that series, right? <laughs> wow. So, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, you know, Jim Starlin is back writing and drawing and, you know, we, we hope to be able to finish telling the rest of the Dreadstar saga. That's amazing. The The book itself is, is really impressive and it's just beautiful to look at it. Justin, you have it too, right? Yeah, I actually picked up the uh, the digital copy of it. Oh, okay. So I'm, yeah, I'm a bit it's... of a scab here. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I I have a lot of Dreadstar issues from different comic companies, but um, I, I did, never had anything that was completely collected like that. So I, I picked it up on Comixology. Well, it was, it was a real chore, like, you know, labor of love, obviously, but it was a real chore to gather everything because... Some of it, some of it was was painted artwork that appeared in Epic Illustrated, so that's a slightly different size ratio than a than a normal comic page. So we had to, you know, we had to finesse a lot of stuff to make sure that it all fit in the book and nothing was squashed and it was it was an appropriate presentation of this material. And a lot of it was like some of it we just, you know, the files didn't exist anymore for most of it. Uh, so Jim ended up having to buy buy his own issues on eBay so that he could get the original issues back and scan them. And then our production guy, Phil Smith would take the scans and manipulate them. So you don't get a lot of the, you know, more patterns and all the stuff that um, you usually see when somebody scans a book and prints it. So we, we went the extra mile to, to try to avoid, avoid that look. And there are a bunch of different filters and methods you can use to, to make it look just like the original rather than uh you know a copy of a copy right right that's amazing how long did it take you to to pull it all together um i took took a uh, probably a year at least to get everything together and then you know and, and the vast majority of it was was jim working with phil smith to to make sure that everything was was how he wanted so and then we you know we filled the back of the book with with extras and like I said, you know, it was a real labor of love. Phil Phil Smith happens to be a really big Starlin and Dreadstar fan anyway, so he was tickled to death working on it. So it was it was ultimately a you know a very satisfying project, but you know very meticulous, uh, page by page, for fifteen hundred pages, making sure everything's right, and then proofreading it, color correcting it, and you know it was it was a long and laborious process, but but it's been it's been very successful. We've had to go back to print with it. So uh, it, it was nice that it found a really receptive audience. That's awesome. Yeah, Dreadstar is one of those comics that I always crossed paths with, paths with when I was younger, but 
it just for never for whatever reason it never fell into my wheelhouse and now that i've read it i feel like i'm glad i read it uh, you know as an adult as opposed to when i was like in my teens or 20s because i wouldn't have gotten it um yeah it was you know it was a, it was it was actually a book that i read when i was a teenager before i'd ever met jim and it was a favorite of mine because it was sort of it was the kind of material that you graduated to after superheroes yeah. And so it was, you know, it was a little bit more adult, but it was still, man, it was still that cool Starlin art. And there's, you know, robots and magic swords and, you know, space battles and all that stuff. Yeah. There were a lot of themes in it, though, too, I think would have may have gone over, would have gone over my head if I had oh, read yeah. it when I was younger. It's, you know, it's definitely pure Starlin. Um, and and the new material is, too. The new material we did, a you know, we, we did the Dreadstar Returns hardcover as well as a Dreadstar guidebook, which was which was basically not design wise, but you know, the same sort of book as the handbook to the Marvel universe and the DC who's who, where, you know, it's all of the information about all of the characters that you can want. I will probably have to find that. That's, that sounds great. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, we, we just did a final, final, final press check uh, today. In fact, to get all of, you know, it's, um, it's written by Bob Greenberger who is the guy, uh, ex-DC editor, um, yep. who wrote the vast majority of the DC Who's Who. And Bob is sort of like the guru of the guys who do that stuff. So, you know, you can... Bob's also written a bunch of Star Trek novels. and That's why I know his name. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, Bob's just a <laughs> great guy. He's a great editor to work for. And, you know, when we decided that we should do a Dread Star guidebook, you know, there was only one name on my list. And so I, I called Bob and he was, he was into it, did a tremendous job, just like researching the whole thing and, and getting all of the, getting all of those original Starlin characters in there. And, and then Phil Smith did the design and production on it and sort of carried through the same design that we did for the omnibus volumes, the same, the same basic design ethos carries through all of the material. So it's all very cohesive. Nice. Do you have any plans of, um, or do you and Jim, I should say, have any plans of maybe turning Dreadstar into a, some kind of a streaming series or a movie of some kind? Um, Jim's always got, you know, there's always Hollywood interest in, in Dreadstar. And obviously the success of Thanos and Drax and Gamora has put even more of a, you know, a Hollywood spotlight on Jim. So I would think that Dreadstar is, um, is certainly in play for, uh, for that kind of uh, adaptation. But, you know, as with all things in, in the film and TV world until, you know, until it happens, until the cameras start rolling, it's never, it's never written in stone. Right. Right. <laughs> what about uh, merchandising for Dreadstar? Any plans for statues or, action figures, things like that? Um, we did T-shirts and hoodies and, you know, stickers and all sorts of stuff at Ominous. And I think all that stuff is on the Ominous website. We actually wanted to do a statue, wanted to do a Dreadstar statue. And Paul Harding, who is a buddy of mine and also a, just an amazing um, toy and statue designer, he works for DC and Sideshow and Gentle Giant and virtually everybody out there, Tweeterhead. Paul did a did a great sculpt of Dreadstar, and it, and we offered it as part of the Kickstarter for the Dreadstar Omnibus. Um, but we just didn't get enough we didn't get enough orders on it to make it commercially viable, because obviously once you you know once you decide to produce a statue, you know you're talking about manufacturing in Asia and getting it shipped over, and 
we just didn't get the the number of orders that we wanted that would have made it financially feasible to to do you know even a short run of of statues so maybe somewhere down the road you know we've still got this this amazing looking design and hopefully we can get that to market at some point that makes sense that's incredible i i highly recommend to the audience to check out the uh dreadstar omnibus it's so good it's just so well it's just so beautiful to look at you know and he's got his own voice too which is as a character very unique you know because you you look at him and you're thinking okay he looks like oliver queen but you know i i get more of like a a John Carter of Mars vibe from it. It's it's really a different voice than what I'm used to seeing. Um, yeah, to to a great extent, Dreadstar is Jim. I mean, he sort of looks like Jim, and you know, I, I know when Jim was doing the painted artwork that he initially did in the '80s when it was part of the Epic Illustrated. You know, Jim used himself as the photo model for uh, for the painted pages for Dreadstar. So you know, certainly the apple didn't fall far from the tree there. Uh, Dreadstar is is very much Jim's uh, Jim's other child besides Thanos. I think didn't he say in the um, in the forward to the book he said that you know anytime someone came into the office he'd make them pose for him as one of the characters and he realized since Dreadstar is the main character of the book he might as well pick the most reliable person which is him the, he's going to always be there yeah, you know he was always going to be there exactly. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. So, uh, Ron, have you ever had a chance to meet Stan Lee? Uh, yeah, I met Stan back in the '90s at one of the uh, one of the early, uh, well, early in my career, Marvel Christmas parties. I believe it was at the um, Grand Central Hotel in New York, and this was when the boom time was on in comics, and Marvel was making money hand over fist because everybody was making money hand over fist in comics. Uh, everything was selling in the hundreds of thousands of copies. Like when I when I took over Silver Surfer, you know, my first gig in comics, uh, we were selling 300,000 copies an issue. Wow. wow. It was just a crazy time in the business. And obviously eventually that the bottom dropped out, but for a while there, it was it was some pretty, you know, the 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 troughs were full for quite for a few years and Marvel had a really amazing holiday party uh, that year. And with like life-size ice sculptures of some of the characters and this insanely huge, bountiful buffet laid out with, you know, man, you, like it was, you know, this huge, you know, display and buffet that, that was topped by, I think, three, three ice sculptures. It was a lavish party. It was amazing. And that's, that's where I met Stan. Um, I was introduced to Stan because he would, you know, he was there to play Stan Lee. He was there to, you know, be a party favor basically. And so, you know, obviously everybody wanted to meet Stan and I, I got my chance to meet Stan and, and Stan knew who I was. I was, you know, I was stunned or at least, what? or at least he convinced me he knew who I was. Um, <laughs> and, you know, like he said, Oh, I love what you're doing on silver surfer. It's a great job. That's my favorite character. <laughs> yeah. You know, wow. Which was cool, like right. I I didn't, you know, I didn't need to take the train home. I just floated. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. I mean, to have the creator of the character just give you praise for that. It just, yeah, you got to have floated home after that. Well, and you know, I think in point of fact, I'm, you know, Jack Kirby was the creator of the character, and you know, the the, the story that I've always heard is that Jack put the Silver Surfer in, and Stan didn't know who he was. Stan was like, well, what's this guy? And he's like, well, that's, you know, that's the herald of God because, you know, God doesn't speak to people. He's got somebody else that does that for him. <laughs> that's that's the apocryphal story that I've always heard. Interesting. 
but but then in, you know yeah in a weird way obviously Stan very much made the surfer his own and and sort of you know in his philosophical philosophical bent Stan was very much you know using the surfer to get his more philosophical ideas out there right and I know and you know certainly the surfer ended up being his favorite character for sure you know the Buscema stuff and then obviously the that Mobius series in the 80s or the Mobius oh, yeah. in the 80s which is oh, yeah. just one of the most amazing looking books I've ever seen that's right. That's Requiem right. was a really good book too. If um, I, I want to say it was like J. Michael Straczynski that wrote that, but that was a really good one. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a very cool character because you can do a lot with him as well. I mean, you can do sort of standard superhero stuff, but you can also do more philosophical stuff with, with the surfer. And uh, I'm really, you know, I was very blessed to start my career working with Ron Lim, who was the consummate professional and just a terrific artist. And I learned a huge amount just working with him. That's great. When you, when you go into um, these companies to, to you know, uh, write the characters that have been around for so long, do you have a certain approach? Like, do you feel like, like, especially like a Silver Surfer, for example, you're like, oh, I, I got to make sure this is this is just right because, the, you know, and, and you already walk in with a knowledge of kind of who the character is. You know, do, do you find it um, not challenging, but intimidating? Um, I, you know, At least when you first start? Honestly, no, I have, you know, like I have enough probably unearned confidence that I don't get intimidated by stuff. I just go in and, you know, I know how to do the job. So let me do it. So, you know, I, I think that probably has something to do with the fact that, you know, when I was 18, I was working for a daily newspaper and being treated as a professional and also, also learning that you couldn't please everybody. Like no matter what you did, there were going to be people complaining about what you did. So uh, I very early on developed, you know, a, a thick skin about um, just just do what you're going to do. I mean, t- tell the story that you want to tell within the within the boundaries that your publisher gives you or the editor allows you. Just tell the story that you want to read and the rest of it kind of takes care of itself. That's awesome. Is there an artist that you haven't worked with yet, but you would love to? Um, yeah, I'm sure that there's a list as long as my arm. <laughs> I've, I've been blessed to work with, you know, any, any number of just amazing artists. It's, you know, the, the, the story that you write is only as good as the person who draws it. And I've been very lucky to work with so many, but I, I think two of the people that I've never worked with that are just on the, you know, on the top of my wish list or that they will probably never happen, but, uh, cause they certainly don't need me. They can write their own damn stories is, uh, Mike Mignola and Lee Weeks. Oh, nice. oh, fantastic choices. Yeah, they're just they're just two of the absolute best. And, and you know, both really sweet guys, too. I know Mike has a Mike has a has a reputation of being kind of a curmudgeon. And he is, <laughs> but he's also a really good dude. That's awesome. I met Lee and we talked about uh, Red Sox baseball for like 45 minutes. It was amazing. He's a big baseball fan. Lee's a baseball guy and a, and a magic guy. He does magic tricks, too. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he does, <laughs> he does sleight of hand stuff. That's awesome. That's awesome. What about characters? Is there a character that you have yet to write that you're dying to do? Um, I, I really ended up writing virtually everybody, at least for a guest appearance here or there, you know, like because of Marvel versus DC. Oh, yeah. I've written like everybody for at least a panel or two. Even like one of my one of my favorite two of my favorite characters are Doctor Strange and Doctor Fate. I would love to write each of them. But I've, you know, like I've 
I, I wrote them together. So maybe I don't, maybe I don't need to write them separately. <laughs> That's so much fun. My answer to this is, is always, um, and even though I've written the character before is, you know, my, my one unfulfilled ambition in comics is I would love to write a monthly Tarzan book. Ooh, that'd be great. There's such a, you know, there's such a great history of Tarzan in comics that I would really love to scratch that itch on a monthly basis, even though I know, you know, I know it's a, it's a rather, it's a, it's a character that um, is not as in vogue, certainly as in its heyday, but I, I'm still really drawn to the, you know, sort of fantasy Africa that, that those stories inhabit and, um, and the kind of more fantastical nature of, of uh, the character. Well, that's awesome. I, I would be there. I'd buy, buy the first issue off the rack. <laughs> I was a big fan of um, the voodoo book that you had done. Um, yeah, well, just, you know, it didn't quite work out like anybody expected. Yeah. And, and I think, I think there was ultimately probably some miscommunication as to what I was going to do and what kind of book they ended up getting. Because I, I felt like they asked me if I wanted to do the book and I was kind of like, well, well, what do you want? And they said, uh, we don't really know what we want. We want something maybe sort of like the TV show Alias, you know, kind of spy stuff. But other than that, we have no, you know, we have no real strong direction. It hmm. seemed like a really good premise. I, and uh, the art was great. So, it... um, yeah, I, I mean, I enjoyed doing it, but it just it ended up not being what they wanted. Yeah. So I, you know, I wrote it and right in my pitch for it was was like if if I do my job correctly, the you know, half of the half of the audience for for the book will think Voodoo is the hero of the book and half of the audience will think she's the villain of the book. Huh. So that's how I wrote it. That's I wanted her to, you know, sort of walk that gray area between between those two extremes and after the first issue came out i got a call from dc and they said you know uh the editor-in-chief doesn't know who he's rooting for in this book <laughs> that's great and i was like yeah exactly and they went no no we, you know we can't have that like what do you what are you doing <laughs> I'm like well that's how the whole book is set up now so you know so eventually you know i wasn't giving them what they wanted and i certainly didn't know what they wanted because they didn't know what they wanted so we just, you know, we just ended up parting ways and, uh, and I feel bad about it. I actually liked the issues that I did quite a bit, but it just, it ended up getting, uh, it, like I said, it, it ended up being one of those things that was neither fish nor foul. It wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't what they wanted. So it just, you know, it just didn't, uh, it didn't hit the mark for anybody. Wow. Unbelievable. Was it a tough decision turning Hal Jordan into Parallax? Um, it wasn't really my decision. It was DC's decision, you know. Oh, okay. DC, you know, DC had the had the basics, like a page and a half of notes for what they wanted uh, Emerald Twilight to to be. Um, so, so that basic storyline was in place already. So all the details and how it was executed and all that that was all me. But the the broad strokes of of that storyline, you know, kind of how losing how losing the shit and going into the power battery and coming out as a different character. That was all the, you know, the basic premise that was handed to me. Um, Daryl Banks is actually the one that came up with the name parallax, which was, which was a perfect name. Absolutely. Yeah. That laid the groundwork for so much. Like the entire Jeff Johns run could not have happened without what you made. <laughs> sure. Well, you know, look, any, any of us stand on the shoulders of all the people who came before us. And I, I got to do what I did before because of all the Green Lantern creators that had come before. And then the people who came after me, you know, picked up the torch, no pun intended, 
from from what we did. And you know, I was really DC just you know just let us run with uh, the concept and the character uh, for quite a long time, uh, and and really really stood behind the decision to you know let's have a let's have a new character in the starring role. That's great. That's amazing. Ron, it's been awesome here. Justin, do you have any further questions for, for Ron today? You know, uh, the only question I could really ask is Green Green Lantern related. Are you a fan of the, the 2011 movie there, the Green Lantern? Because it seemed like he was a good cross of Hal and some other things, but he wasn't like a true Hal. What, what's your take on that film? Um, I've actually never seen it all the way through. Okay. It, 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 uh, I've seen bits and pieces of it and I, I don't know that it, you know, I don't know that it works as well as anybody wanted it to. Yeah. I think there were, you know, I think there were probably some script issues and it just, I, I think it was, it was not exactly, I mean, to me, how works best as sort of that, you know, that Chuck Yeager, you know, daredevil, uh, test pilot archetype. And it, I don't know that, that Ryan Reynolds was, was the right guy for that role. And obviously he's just the perfect guy for Deadpool. So yeah, a lot of it, a lot of it comes down to casting. And if you don't, uh, if you don't hit, um, if you don't hit the mark on that stuff, it, it kind of, it makes the whole assignment tougher. Um, I think that's one of the reasons that Marvel's movies have been so good is that they almost get, they get the casting right almost every time. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm with you on that one. And then uh, my my last question for you is just uh, whose uh, whose voice do you hear when you when you read a, a specific character like Batman or something? Do you have like a go to in your head, or do you hear something all different? Um, not really. I just you know th- those are all like comic book characters are just comic book characters to me. Like I don't hear anybody's specific voice. I mean, maybe Kevin Conroy for Batman since he's since his voice is so identifiable and so good yeah but for the most part like i don't like i i read these characters and and started reading these characters and writing these characters long before there was anybody you know anybody had a voice attached to it right like so so captain america doesn't sound like chris evans to me he just sounds like captain america (laughs) Uh, he sounds like red brown (laughs) yeah i don't think anybody gives that answer Uh, (laughs) um So yeah, I don't really have, I don't really voice cast anyone. I mean, maybe, like I said, maybe Conroy for Batman, and maybe Christopher Reeve for Superman because that that had a big impact on me as a kid. Um, right. But other than that, I just, you know, I always, I always approach them as as how I sort of read them when I was a kid. It's funny that you said that, Justin, because when I was re-re- when I was rereading Batman Aliens, the, without even realizing it, I was probably about three or four pages in, I was realized that I was hearing Kevin Conroy's voice in my head. <laughs> I, I go back and forth between Conroy and Bruce Greenwood. Oh, there you go. Oh, yeah. Well, I, you know, I tend to write write Batman as quietly as possible. Like I don't, I don't know that I've ever used an exclamation point for Batman. Uh, unless he's getting punched or something like that, because my version of Batman just never raises his voice because he doesn't have to. Right. Uh, you know, I I like the I like a Batman who does not say much and does not raise his voice just because, you know, he he scares the crap out of you just by speaking. Right. Uh, do you have any plans to, or, or have you, and we, maybe we missed it? Have you uh, worked on any animation for either company, or do you have plans to? Um, I have not. I you know it's. Uh, it's it's a interesting thing because um, J.M. DeMattis, who obviously has a storied comics career, 
and actually lives in Kingston, New York. He lives in my hometown now. Wow. Like JM has moved into a lot, doing a lot of the animation stuff for, for DC and writing a number of the films. And it's, it's always been sort of interesting, uh, you know, an interesting direction to go in, but I've just never, you know, I've never had the opportunity and, you know, there's always been enough comics work to keep me busy. That's interesting. Well, Ron, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. And uh, can you tell our listeners what books you've got out currently that they should be looking for and, and where they can find you online? Um, find me online at uh, on Twitter mostly at Ron Mars. Um, there's a there's a Ron Mars Comics uh, Facebook page, but um, I don't maintain it. Somebody else does, and I and I get messages from it. But you know, Twitter's the one where uh, Twitter's the one where um, I'm. That's that gets my attention every day. And you know, I, my website is in dire need of a of a uh, <laughs> of an update. <laughs> But that's you know that's there too. And uh, let's see, I just I just did um, uh, Andy Lanning and I co-wrote the Endless Winter crossover for DC in December, which was a Justice League event across nine books. And Andy and I are working on something, uh, two other things actually right now, with the other as co-writers that have not been announced, so I can't tell you what they are. And there's uh, there's the sequel to Beast of the Black Hand, which is almost done. That's ready to go to press in a few weeks for Ominous Press. And let's see, what's like I, I should know all of this stuff off the top of my head, but there's a number of things that haven't been announced yet. My serial Swamp God is going to be in Heavy Metal magazine. There'll be a, a heavy metal, a separate heavy metal comic series called World Traveler that I'm doing, and. And other stuff that's uh, other stuff that I guess will be announced later this year that I'm working on now. You know, like thankfully working on a bunch of stuff because there's nowhere to go and nothing to do. So I just sit here and work every day. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. And you know, feel free to come back on the show whenever you want to promote a new project or maybe even just talk comics with us. Um, sounds good, guys. It was a pleasure. Um, I like you know I I like doing this stuff especially right now because this is. You know, this is the connection that we can have. Um, hopefully later this year, um, we can all start to get together and in, in buildings with each other again. But for now, this is this is what we've got. So I hope everybody's safe and healthy and making the best of it. And, you know, in a few months, we're, we're on the other side of this. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Ron. Thanks, guys. Everybody take care. We'll do it again. Okay. Well, Justin, that was amazing. Well, I mean, what a guy, huh? Yeah, absolutely. He had some great questions there. Oh, thank you. Yeah, he had some. Uh, he just had so many good stories. It just kept, you know, things just kept coming to mind. <laughs> yeah, I um I was not aware of the Deepak Chopra uh, book on that. That's uh that's a great one, and I gotta probably look for that on Comicsology now. Yeah, yeah. There you go. There you go. So, Justin, once again, thank you for joining us here on the show. And uh, can you give our listeners your contact uh, online information? Yeah, the, the best place you could find me is uh, there is a podcast, Epic Tales from the Sewers, which is all based on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comics and uh, various uh, artists and writers that we've spoken with. You could check me out there. Um, the Fantastic Podcast, uh, you could find me on Instagram. You can find me on Twitter or on Facebook in the Epic Shells uh, Facebook group. Excellent, excellent. Well, thanks for coming on again, and I look forward to having you on the show in the future. Thanks, sir.
Well, folks, we hope you enjoyed our discussion today with comic book author Ron Mars. I highly recommend that you go out and read as much of his work as you possibly can. You won't be able to put it down. Please tell us what you thought about today's episode. You can send your feedback to thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join in the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group. Then Is Now podcast is a proud member of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so be sure to check out the other great shows there at thedorkening.com. You can also visit our website at havenpodcasts.com, where you'll find our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and spaghetti western movies. And Then Is Now is on YouTube, so visit youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 to get the latest videos as well as other fun videos. Please subscribe to our YouTube page and also share the video versions of our podcast with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. Don't forget to go wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review so that more listeners can find us. We are on all the podcasting apps, especially the big three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Class dismissed. shows like the one you just heard check out the dorkening podcast network at the dorkening.com